Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To all my bed crimers, a happy Sunday. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching the video, if you find you enjoyed it or learned something, do me a favor, smash the like button. It's a free way you can help me. Now, let's get started. Like Airmail Magazine, Vanity Fair is publishing a multi-part article about the case. Part one of the series is entitled The Idaho Murders, How Four College Kids Lived and Loved, and it was written by Kathleen Hale. I found it quite interesting because it gave me a better idea of what the four students were really like, and it also shed light on suspect Brian Koberger. The article begins with these sentences, and I quote, Brian Koberger was unusual, but he didn't necessarily want to be. In middle school, he wore polos and tried to be popular. Instead, he was known by some for being creepy. With a dead-eye stare, he pursued unattainable girls, mainly the pretty ones who were out of his league, as one classmate later put it. He gave them a weird feeling in their stomach, another said. According to the article, Brian maintained a quasi-friendship that was only enjoyed at school with an autistic classmate. The reporter gives this friend the name Lee to protect his identity. Lee, like Koberger, was bullied. Although they were friends for a spell, Lee at some point grew wary of Koberger. Lee told the reporter this. He just had something about him that seemed off and I was trying to better my own social standing, as I was at that time a bit of a social outcast myself because of my autism, so I didn't want to associate myself with him. End quote. According to Lee, Brian seemed to vacillate between emotionlessness and fury, even under the best circumstances, and what really made him mad was rejection. Lee said that when he and Brian were about 13, he told Brian the friendship was over. In response, Brian attacked Lee. Lee described it like this. He pinned me because he was very overweight. I was chubby myself, but he was probably 50 plus pounds heavier than me, end quote. As time went on, Koberger took up boxing and shed the extra weight. The writer of the article, Kathleen Hale, then brings up Koberger's aunt, who said that he refused to eat animal products or any food that had touched anything that might have once touched animal products. Hale speculates that maybe Brian thought a strict vegan diet would cure his visual snow syndrome or VSS. Hale also mentions that Koberger, or someone who shared his photograph, birth date, and email, recorded his journey into VSS and mental deterioration on that VSS message board. I think Hale is spot on there when she says those posts illustrate Koberger's mental deterioration, provided that was really Koberger. The article then talks about Brian attending school in Pleasant Valley, the same school district where his mother, Marianne, was employed as a teacher's aide and his father, Michael, worked as a maintenance worker. The family had financial troubles, as we know, as evidenced by Marianne and Michael 
only having $49.77 in savings at one point. When Brian was around age 15, the parents declared bankruptcy for the second time. During this period, according to old acquaintances, Brian started doing heroin. He eventually got clean, but some people wonder if opioids might have kept his demons at bay. The article says this, and I quote, Stoned users slump in the corner like drunken pooh bears. They do not gut people. End quote. That was a powerful line. Oh my goodness. By high school, though, people like Lee were no longer speaking to Koberger. They say that it seemed like as he got thinner, he got meaner. The article says that as Brian was finishing high school in 2013, sixth graders Maddie Mogan and Kaylee Gonzalez were cementing their best friendship. They met that year at Cour de Laine Charter Academy. And if I said that the French way, I'm sorry. Please don't correct me. It's just my way. Deal with it. Where Maddie's mom managed a hotel. Maddie loved the water and Kaylee had a boat. They both listened to the band Train and both girls went on each other's family vacations to Hawaii and Mexico. When it came time for high school, the two girls paired up to campaign for their parents to let them enroll at Lake City High School, which would have been a much larger school compared to their charter academy. Per the article, Maddie and Kaylee's birthdays on May 25th and June 8th were only two weeks apart, and we know from their Instagram accounts that they celebrated their birthdays together. Not far away, Zana Cornoto was having a very different childhood. As Kaylee and Maddie were enjoying water sports, a landlord was evicting Zana's mother, Kara, from her apartment. For a spell, Zana lived in Arizona, where the article says she played kickball barefoot until the soles of her feet turned black. The brunette-haired beauty seemed to be searching for a mother figure to replace the one she'd lost to drugs. In college, Zana would spend football tailgates, charming her friend's parents, and she always seemed to go home with somebody's mother's phone number. Zana apparently enjoyed texting with her friend's moms. That's so sad. Kara Kernodal's housing problems, according to the article, were just, and I now quote, one card in a stack of trouble. Kara struggled with meth, and Zana's father, Jeffrey, admitted in court to having used it as well. Kara wore an ankle monitor until Zana's birth, and when Zana was five months old, Kara was incarcerated on new drug charges. Per the article, Kara was released shortly before Zana's first birthday, and then arrested on drug charges once again. Poor Zana. This tragic pattern continued until Jeffrey and Kara divorced. At that point in 2004, Zana and her older sister Jasmine were placed with an aunt and uncle. We know that Maddie Mogan's dad also struggled with drugs at one point and related legal charges, and the court-appointed public defender representing Brian Koberger dealt with both Kara Kernodal Northington and Maddie's father. In 2021, Idaho filled 1,180,947 opioid prescriptions. That's the same drug type that Alec Murdoch 
was addicted to. In 2021, about one out of 800 Idahoans died from opioid-related issues. Once again, all I can say is, this is so sad what these drugs are doing to our citizens, our friends, our family members, etc. Zana appeared to be very resilient and just motored on with her life through all of this. The article says, and I quote, she appeared to reject sadness. She practiced self-love. Like Maddie and Kaylee, Zana seemed to believe destiny could be helped along by a positive attitude. Are you guys in tears yet? I am. Once Zana wrote, happiness looks gorgeous on you and be the energy you want to attract. Back to Brian Koberger. After he graduated from high school, he returned to the halls of his former high school to work as a security guard. According to Haley Willette, she's the girl who went on the Tinder date with Brian in 2015, see an action movie. At the theater, Brian's behavior struck Haley as normal. He held the door for her. He was polite to the ushers. He was also able to hold a conversation. At the time, Willette had blonde hair, just like Kaylee and Maddie. And I personally get the feeling Koberger favored blondes, or favors, I should say, which makes me wonder how he feels about his public defender. Just saying. It makes me wish that Kaylee had stuck to her natural brunette locks. But then again, Zana was a brunette and her hair color didn't save her. The article goes on about Willette's experiences with Koberger on that Tinder date. I'm not going to rehash all that because I've already talked about it in another video. In 2018, Brian graduated from Northampton Community College with a degree in psychology with 750 other classmates. By 2020, Koberger had enrolled into Sales University, a Catholic college where he studied under Dr. Catherine Ramsland, an expert in serialists who wrote Dennis Rader's biography. By all accounts, Brian seemed to thrive at DeSales, where he showed an intense interest in mass blanks crime scenes. One of his professors deemed him a brilliant student, but something was off. According to the New York Post, employees at Seven Sirens Brewing Company in Pennsylvania recalled Brian sitting by himself, staring at people, until he inevitably harassed women after a few beers, asking them creepy questions about where they lived or whom they were with. And if women refused to give him attention, he would call them the B-word. We knew about this. What strikes me is how the employees describe Koberger as staring. That's exactly what female students at the University of Idaho said about Koberger when he showed up in their student union. According to this article, last May, Brian ascended a stage to collect his diploma. He exchanged an expressionless fist bump with the director of DeSales Criminal Justice Program. Before the ceremony ended, Father Kevin Nodolsky applauded graduates for their sensitivity to others. Wishful thinking, Father Nodolsky. The DeSales University motto was, be who you are and be that well, end quote. 
The article describes Koberger leaving the auditorium like this. While exiting the auditorium, Brian's deep-set eyes and prominent brow created such dark shadows that from certain angles, it looked like he was wearing sunglasses. It was round about the same time that Brian posted that survey on Reddit asking criminals to participate and answer questions about their crimes. A few months later, Brian started school in Pullman, Washington, to pursue his Ph.D. in criminology at Washington State University. The article says that as a teaching assistant, Brian earned a reputation as an annoyingly harsh grader who gave away too much unsolicited criticism. Covering students' papers with handwritten notes, he developed a reputation for being arrogant and alienating. This makes me think that because Koberger was given a little power over others as a teaching assistant, the mean Brian, the one who wanted to get back at everyone who had ever rejected him, was allowed out of the bottle. Maybe at DeSales, Koberger thrived because he didn't have to interact with others very much. All he needed to do was his homework and be articulate in class with the professors. Maybe the professor who wrote the letter of recommendation for Brian to WSU never had a chance to see Koberger interact with his peers or in a position of power. Brian picked fights apparently with his peers at WSU. One of his classmates described him as aggressively pretentious, desperate to prove intellectual superiority, especially over women. The article says, and I quote, But Brian was no genius. His verbose pontifications left people confused. As one WSU student put it, one thing he would always do, almost without fail, was find the most complicated way to explain something, end quote. And his neighbor, Gaurav Narong, a computer science and engineering graduate student, said that Koberger would corner him to talk about why people commit crimes. Back to the four students. A week before Ethan Chapin died, his parents, Stacy and Jim, drove to the University of Idaho for parents' weekend. They went to visit their triplets, Ethan, Maisie, and Hunter. Ethan and Hunter were Sigma Chi's, and Maisie was a Kappa Alpha Theta. The article says that Stacy and Jim were elated to see their babies settled into student lives. They felt as though they'd been successful as parents. They're quoted as saying this, You've created three incredible human beings that will go on and have something great to offer this world. End quote. Tragically, that weekend was the last time they saw Ethan. The article goes on to talk about Moscow, Idaho being a wholesome kind of place with some eccentric people. In 2021, the 911 calls were mostly about noise complaints, stray animals, and public intoxication. On November 12th of 2022, Maddie and Kaylee, per the article, were putting on makeup, and I quote now, they had adored each other for nearly a decade and were still a team at the University of Idaho where they lived off campus with three other girls in a six-bedroom house at the intersection of King and Queen Road. As those who've closely followed the case know, the house wasn't really Kaylee's anymore. She wasn't even supposed to be there that weekend. She'd returned to Moscow to show Maddie her new gray Range Rover, and she was planning to move to Austin, Texas, 
to start her new job at a marketing firm in February. Both Kaylee and Maddie were hard workers. Maddie made the dean's list, and per the article, she'd been earning her own money since she started cleaning her mom's hotel as a kid. Her goal was to be a millionaire one day. That Saturday night must have felt like one last hurrah before Kaylee's move to Austin. Zana and her first-ever boyfriend, Ethan, were attending a party at the Sigma Chi frat house. Per the article, not much had improved in the past decade with Zana's mother, Kara. Kara had been arrested again for possession of a controlled substance, this time with the intention of dealing. Despite her family's troubles, Zana was thriving. The article says Zana loved Ethan. He was kind, hilarious, and fun. On a roller coaster ride, he'd flash his nipples just as the camera flashed. He was also known to burst out singing songs from Moana. His drink of choice was Bud Light Lime. The article says, and I quote, to understand Ethan, all anybody really needed to know was that he was a tulip farmer. A fellow gardener would later describe Ethan's soul as a hundred percent pure. End quote. Last summer, Ethan invited Zana to his vacation house in Priest Lake, Idaho. They spent a lot of time with Ethan's older brother. His father had had a son from an earlier marriage. They also hung out with Ethan's nephew, who liked to call Zana banana. Per the article, every day Ethan rushed home from his summer job as a waiter to see banana. They made each other laugh with inside jokes that other people didn't understand. They adored each other. Isn't it beautiful to know that Ethan and Zana had a chance to know what it felt like to be loved by someone other than family, to experience romantic love? Somehow it's comforting to know that they felt this head over heels, young love for each other, that they too, like Maddie and Kaylee, were together when they died. The article goes on to talk about Maddie and her two-year romance with Jake Schreiger. He adored her and she loved him back. The article says that he loved how much she loved being comfy. Whenever Maddie found a couch, she also managed to find a fuzzy blanket popping off her shoes to reveal similarly fuzzy socks. Per the article, Maddie and Kaylee breezed into the corner club bar around 10 p.m. on Saturday. Those at the bar who were upset about the vandals lost were drowning their sorrows in tub cups, which are Corner Club's largest drink size, weighing in at 30 ounces. As we all know, Kaylee and Maddie left the Corner Club around 1.30 a.m. and headed down Main Street. It was 28 degrees outside. Then they went to the grub truck. Kaylee apparently struggled to say the word carbonara as she placed her order. Then she and Maddie booked a ride home. Per the article, on the ride home, they chatted with their driver, a guy they already knew because it was a small town and he'd picked them up before. The article goes on to say, and I quote, 10 minutes later, Kaylee and Maddie climbed out of the car and trudged up the driveway to their house. It was nearly 2 a.m. Crumpled cans of Keystone beer littered the yard. At the girls' many parties, strangers let themselves in and out of the house all the time. There was a number lock on the front door, the passcode to which the five housemates shared with their many friends, who in turn shared it with their friends. That's upsetting to hear. We knew they had parties, and there were rumors that the passcode was floated around widely. 
Although it's believed the perpetrator went in through the sliding doors, it does make me wonder if he found out what that passcode was. Per the article, within an hour, Kaylee tried to call her ex-boyfriend, Jack DeCur, seven times. They dated for five years. She'd broken up with him three weeks earlier. Then the article describes the events that happened starting around 4 a.m. I'm not going to reiterate those. If you've been a subscriber of mine for any length of time, you already know exactly what went down. And if you aren't a longtime subscriber, you can check out previous videos in which I describe those events. What the article does say is that the red liquid we could see in photos of the kitchen running down the cabinets, was coming down from the third floor crime scene. That would be Maddie Mogan's bedroom. Local investigators would call the off-campus house of horrors the worst crime scene they'd ever seen. Whoever did this really does deserve the worst punishment possible. And per the article, one of the surviving roommates really did faint. We'd heard rumors of that, but this article confirms that it indeed happened. The other roommate wasn't spared either. The reason her voice wasn't heard on the 911 call, despite it being made from her phone, is that she was hyperventilating and unable to speak coherently to the operator. The article goes on to describe the victim's family's grief. I thought the information they shared about Zana's mother, Kara, was particularly touching. The article reads, and I quote, On December 3rd, Zana's distraught mom, Kara, phoned a news program to discuss her frustration with law enforcement and to talk about her daughter. I believe that was Ashley Banfield's show on News Nation. Throughout the segment, Kara's responses indicated a deeper level of grief. She'd never been to 1122 King Road. She didn't know what kind of car Zana drove. Kara was caught in a different kind of mourning. She'd lost someone she loved, but never really knew, end quote. Before anyone attacks this poor woman, let me say that I know addiction is a disease. I've seen it up close and personal. Kara suffered from this disease as far back as when Zana was born. We don't know what type of support Kara received, if any, from those around her. Maybe her family didn't have the money to put her in a pricey rehab. Maybe they had, but it didn't work. Kara now has to deal with those continuing demons as she processes her daughter's horrific death and the fact that she now can no longer try and make up for lost time. Let's have compassion instead of finger-pointing. Yes, it's okay for Kara's daughters and family members to be angry that she picked up the drugs in the first place. They're the ones who have the right to feel upset with her. But we are strangers to her, and we don't know the whole story. I always say there are three sides to a story. One person's, the other person's, and then there's the truth that lies somewhere between the two. After the crime... Brian Koberger seemed chattier and more upbeat. His students started getting better grades and kinder feedback. He got a new license plate for his car, a fresh haircut. If he did this, I mean the crime, how sick is it that he felt energized by taking the lives of four incredible young people who had their whole lives ahead of them? I'm going to skip the article's description of how public cries for answers led the Moscow police to head into the crime scene 
and take out some of the students' belongings to appease their parents in some small way? Let me jump to Brian and his father's road trip home to Pennsylvania. By the way, if you want to read this article, I'll leave a link to it in the description. It's a very long article, but it's very good. En route, we know that Brian and his father were stopped twice in Indiana. The article reads, and I quote, By the time they made it to Indian Mountain Lake, their home community in the Pocono Mountains, Brian's Hyundai Elantra was filthy. Pollution, rain, snow, and dirt had stained the white car brown. Brian parked in the driveway of his parents' modest home, purchased in 2014 for nearly $139,000. Over the next two weeks, he was seen wearing gloves while grocery shopping, end quote. Then, as we know, on December 30th, windows shattered, door frames splintered, and agents broke the silence of the Koberger home, yanking Brian Koberger from his warm bed and arresting him for this crime. Today, private security guards take turns protecting 1122 King Road. Per the article, and I now quote, Prior to his night shift, one guard reassured himself, Nothing is stronger than God, praying for protection against the violent energy in the house, inside where Kaylee, Zanna, and Maddie had once pinned, posted, and practiced their favorite affirmations. Don't panic. I don't know where I'm going from here, but I promise it won't be boring. Paradise is where I am. End quote. How true that last sentence is. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, please smash that like button, subscribe to my channel, leave me a comment, consider a membership, and I'll see you next time.